And we, Father, we come that beautiful prayer in the story again. We love you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are our friend. We ask tonight that you would do what you love to do. Reveal your favorite person. (laughs) There has never been anyone like him and there never will be again. Make Jesus beautiful in our eyes. May our minds be opened to understand the story. And may our hearts burn within us as we see this one. We love you and we consecrate this time to you. and We consecrate our hearts to you. Do great things tonight. Amen. I guess it goes without saying that I'm rather excited about tonight. (laughs) I hope you are too. I guess it would be rather different if we actually were sitting in the silence of history, not knowing what was coming. But the secret's out. And there's... A lot, a lot of people that know about it. (laughs) And tonight we're going to stand in the unknowing and stand in the revealing. And we're going to ask that it would be like we had never known before. That what we know would almost be erased that we could pause and wait in the tension. I want to do a little review of the story. This part of the story is called the recapitulation, and I will unfold it in a little while, what that word means. But I wanted to just fly through the the pages of history and, and the unfolding of God in time just for a moment since we've been together Uh, Over these last nights. God is an eternal triune family. That dreamed of enlarging his family. Before creation. This is and was his eternal purpose. We sat with him in that space. Before anything was created. And we began to feel the atmosphere. Where everything is right. The eternal home life of God. The glory of his honoring, loving, beautiful, joyful nature expressed in relationship. And in that place before we were, we were there filling up his imagination. This was his eternal purpose. God's dream is that every person would be included in his eternal family. Every family on earth would be blessed. God created us for relationship with him. 
He blessed us to rule over creation and fill the entire planet with his family, glory, image, and likeness. He wanted an earth teeming with his nature expressed in the ones that he created to be in relationship with him. What a beautiful God. Man departed from this original design and in sin destroyed relationship, forfeited authority, and brought this long history of death. The decaying of their soul, the decaying of the image of God and its glory, and the decaying of the creation itself. And there began the groans for something more. The longing for something that we remember deep, deep down in our original design as humanity. And this is where God initiated his rescue plan to restore. Not just a response to, oh no, they screwed it up. But actually, his eternal purpose was set deep into his heart long before we ever screwed it up. I love that. (laughs) That we would be with him. He would restore, redeem, and re-include humanity into his eternal family and fellowship through a series of covenants with his people, Israel. But Israel was unable to be faithful to God in covenant relationship. The long, slow drama of their inability to trust that God is really that good. That what he has said is true, it is loving, and it is life. That he is the one who is their marriage covenant partner. That he really is that good and wants to be with them. And that he is making them worthy to stand in that covenant. They were unable to believe him, unable to observe his ways and his law and keep his commands. And we walked through that last night, that incredible drama where he sends person after person after person, bleeding with his heart, saying, I want you. My love, return to me and we will have children of all nations. That was according to his original purpose. His eternal purpose. And we landed with Malachi rehearsing the words or proclaiming the words from the heart of God. I will send Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers, lest I strike the land with a curse. You can feel the ache of the curse from the garden overwhelming the earth. And at the same time, you can see the desire of the Father's heart. And at this point in the story, as we said last night, you move into 400 years of this gnawing silence. Where the tension is building. And it's as though time itself is pregnant with the passion 
of God. Can you feel time expanding until it bursts? That is about, that is what we're about to see. I want to just describe to you a little bit of the picture of these 400 years. Because while God was silent, lots was going on in history. I can't give you a full um, layout of this time period because of the sake of time. But it's a fascinating period of time in the nation of Israel. The first thing I'll mention is the death of the promises in exile. We talked a little bit about this. The land, the king, and the temple. When they went into exile, it was as though their covenants were stripped, their promises were gone, and God himself was distant and far away, even though he began to fill up the imagination of the prophets to declare a a bright hope and a future. And this time brought this deep sense of legalism of, we won't screw it up again, (laughs) right? We are going to keep the covenant No matter what. And certain strains of the people particularly focused on this. Pharisees, to be exact. And commended to the people that these were times to enter into the full obedience to the law. Zealots were arising as well in this time period. Many were trying to throw off Roman oppression. The Romans were the empire that took over from the Greeks. The Greeks gave the modern world their civilization, their language. A lot of their thinking was formed. The Romans came and said, sure, that's great. We'll adapt that. And with it, we'll build a powerful army and empire and a system of travel and roads to connect the known world. This is the time period that we're sitting in. There's a disillusionment with the new temple. There's an expectation for Messiah. Where is the kingdom of God? You've got to get this in your imagination. The kingdom of God. The reign and rule of God. In other words, what they were expecting was not the same atmosphere that existed in the eternal family before creation existed. They had an expectation based on a political reality with a military ruler who would throw off their oppressors and give them back their land. I can't say say that I blame them based on their history for having this expectation, but this expectation is about to get turned on its head. But you can feel the zealots arising. There was even a time with the Maccabees where they actually succeeded in throwing off oppression. And still, Hanukkah is an observation of this time period where they had liberation. But again, the empire clamped down on them. And once again, they are under someone else's rule other than Yahweh. So their cry is, Yahweh, save us. Lord, deliver us. Throw off our oppressors. Give us our land. Set up your king. The name of the king is the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah. Their expectation of Messiah was not that he is God, but that he would be their David. Do you see? 
So there's a lot happening in these 400 years. Now, I have a little bit of a challenge tonight. And that is, Jesus is probably the most familiar person in your world. And that familiarity, unfortunately, breeds this deep boredom. Tonight, I want to start with six quotes from the last few hundred years, from people that you might know or have heard of. And some of these people don't even know Jesus in the way that you might be there sitting knowing him in an intimate relationship. And yet their words pour from them with such an adoration and a fascination that it grips you and says, do I know Jesus? Now, I know I'm blowing the plot a little bit, but I I just felt if we could spark our imagination. My friend Nathan Chud looked up a lot of these quotes a few years ago, and they have really sparked something or provoked something of jealousy in my heart to say, do I love him? Do I really know who I love and what I got? So can we read these together? Six quotes. First one's by a a little-known man named Albert Einstein. Early 20th century German-born theoretical physicist. Say that five times. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Wow. Ralph Waldo Emerson, a 19th century American ethicist, lecturer, and poet. He saw with open eyes, there's that story language, The mystery of the soul. One man was true to what is in you and me. He, as I think, is the only soul in history who has appreciated the worth of man. (laughs) Who is coming in the story? H.G. Wells, a 20th century English writer and historian. I am a historian. I am not a believer. Thank you very much. Just wanted that to be clear. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Come on. James C. Hefley, 20th century writer, teacher, and yes, one of those things. Pastor. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race. He is the leader of the column of progress. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, that all the navies that were ever built, that all the parliaments that have ever sat, that all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. God, encounter us. Um, This is a uh, fine fellow named Napoleon. I know men and I tell you, 
Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or even explain it here Everything is extraordinary. Wow. Last one. Philip the Yancey, 21st century writer. As Walter Wink has said, which I think is a fine name, Walter Wink. If Jesus had never lived, we would not have been able to invent him. Just think about that for a second. If Jesus had never lived... You could not have invented him. He is more than you can imagine. This story is a pinch me story. Could this really be real? Two words one could never think of applying to the Jesus of the gospel, boring and predictable. How is it then that the church has tamed such a character? I, I love to just meditate on these quotes and think about them and stir my heart to fascination. And that's what we're asking for tonight. I want to read this word from John. What was it going to be What shape was this story going to take? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Do you feel the eternal family affection? And the Word was God. John is using this crazy word of the order, the logos, the order of the cosmos, the divine wisdom that put it all together. And then he is about to take that word and slam it into and marry it with the crude, absurd word for flesh. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. You wonder what God spoke when he said, let there be light, huh? The word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The Logos became Sarks. The divine wisdom of God is going to become what you dwell in. Okay. I know we're not there in the story, but this fills your imagination with some generality How is this going to transpire? Are you kidding me? 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now it's time to reimagine glory in the exact representation of the word who is becoming flesh. Now it's time to see the cry of Moses. Show me your glory walking around on the earth. He is the one and the only begotten of the Father. How is this going to happen? Your mind goes back to Isaiah's word, Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What is a child doing as the Everlasting Father? Why is a child the prince of peace? You try to reconcile the logos becoming flesh. The child becoming the everlasting father. Try to get that into your little brain. This is what they could not handle. This is what they could not reconcile. I want to go back to the recapitulation. This is what recapitulation means. In a moment, the composer takes all the tension of the development, takes the home key of the exposition and the introduction, and in one moment, he moves the music and he restates the entire piece and he fills it full with his intended meaning. Here is what the word made flesh means. In one short summary word, God will restate the entire story of humanity and the entire story of Israel. And he will take that shrunken image of God, colorless and dead. He will fill it full again, stamp it with divinity by living it himself. And in that act of incarnation, he will give back humanity and Israel their story, their place of dignity, and their relationship with the Father. He will hand them their forfeited authority, and forever they will have the favored place before God because of him. Recapitulation. It wasn't that Jesus was about to show up and check off the Messiah checklist. All right, ride in on a donkey. Where do I find one? Check it off, right? Be born in Bethlehem. How do I do it? Okay, check it off, right? That is not what it means that he fulfilled the story. It doesn't mean that he checked off the Messiah checklist of crazy random prophecies. It means That he took the entire story into himself and filled it full and gave humanity back their dignity and place before God. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He defeated the accuser who diminished our soul and worth and stole us from our Father. He gave us back the 
authority that we forfeited. And he shared with us in his unmerited favor and grace, his favored place before God forever. Are you kidding? This is recapitulation. Would you like to find out how? (laughs) So would I. Let's open up the story. In the beginning of Luke, activity begins to brew in the heavenlies. When Gabriel starts moving all over the place, you know something's about to happen. I can only imagine the moment when the eternal family could not contain themselves anymore. (laughs) What was rippling through the heavens as God's joy And passion to be with us was uncontainable. Gabriel got knocked down by the first wave through the atmosphere of heaven by the joy of God's uncontainable love. And somehow, probably without communication, it hits his being that the fullness of time is upon them. Do you feel the pregnancy of God's desire? It is uncontainable. When Gabriel's commissioned, he goes once again to an old man with a barren wife. Hmm. The story's about to unfold. Gabriel shows up and about shocks this old man to death as he's doing his duty in the temple. Do you feel the drama around the temple still existing? Wow. Gabriel speaks to him and says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be great. You will name him John. You can read this in Luke 1. Zechariah is like, but my wife, Elizabeth's barren. And because of his unbelief, Gabriel looks at him and says, this is going to happen and you're going to be what? Silent until it does. Zechariah is silent for his own belief. God's been silent because of the people's unbelief. Do you feel this drama? Silence. Gabriel's got a grander task at hand. After that encounter, Zechariah goes back. He's trying to motion to Elizabeth. He's like, words aren't working. Let's just get intimate. (laughs) It's another way to speak. And wouldn't you know... Come on. Wouldn't you know that she gets pregnant 
by the miraculous promise of God. Another barren woman found with life. God puts his life where there is no hope of life. In our barrenness, he brings forth his promises. Again, and again, and again, and again. You cannot change him. (laughs) He will have the glory for this entire story, won't he? And Gabriel cruises back into the heavenly realm. And oh my goodness. The eternal word erupts with excitement. The time has come. The Father so loves us that he's going to give his only son. Gabriel comes to this young woman. The more I think about this, the more absurd God becomes in my eyes. Really, God? You're going to entrust your internal purpose to an engaged teenage couple? I've done premarital counseling. You're going to take your eternal dream that you've been waiting since before creation and you're going to hand it To a couple who's not even in covenant marriage, you know how much trouble this is going to cause them? You really are that crazy and humble? And when the angel shows up to this woman, it's another woman in the story. Oh my goodness, will she foreshadow what we will all become? Feel this. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, meaning after Gabriel had spoken to John the Baptist, who will be the cousin of Jesus, which is crazy. Family kingdom, right? God sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. This is in the north of the land. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. A descendant of David. Hallelujah. That rings with story, doesn't it? The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That is the understatement of the century. You who are highly favored. She's like, what? The full glory of Gabriel standing before her, addressing her as having captured the attention of the heavenly realm of God himself. Isn't that wild? Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Don't you love how the Bible understates things? Can you imagine what she did? Like, ah! (laughs) And wondered, what kind of greeting is this? I was doing my laundry. I mean, what was she doing? This is crazy. Like another day in her life. And the angel says, don't be afraid. Thank you for saying that again and again in the story. Mary, you've found favor with God. Oh, it just melts your heart. 
You will be with child and you will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Now to us, it might be another name. But when that name was spoken, Yeshua, this was their conquering Joshua. This was the one who brought them in to the promised land. You shall give him the name Yeshua. Do you feel that? Okay, what kind of address is this? He will be great. Again, understatement of, the, of eternity. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Very practical question. She's like, okay. I mean, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You can see the Spirit brooding over the waters at creation. Mary is about to become a foreshadowing of the insane humility that all of humanity will have to undergo. Will you believe that God himself is coming to live inside of you. What Mary was challenged to believe in the natural, you will be invited to believe in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come on you and overshadow you. The power of the Most High. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God which did not necessarily mean very God. It was a messianic title from Daniel, the son of man, the son of God, the ruling king of David. That shock would come on the planet later, that he was actually very God, very man, fully God, fully man. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child. I'm sure that shocked her as well. She who is barren is in her sixth month for what? Nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. Are you kidding me? May it be as you have said. Hold on just a second. I want to set this story up. John the Baptist is born. And um, this, it's a huge deal dedication because there is this stir throughout the land because they have heard through the miraculous phenomena that the priest can't speak that the son that will be born is going to be great. In fact, People actually think this will be the Messiah. So there is this huge stir right before the next act of the drama. Do you feel this? And when he goes at at the eighth day, and I'm about to unfold to you three significant moments in in the life of a Jewish boy, which would be eight days old, 12 years old, and 30 years old. 
But at eight days old, this was the time for what? Do you remember from the story? Circumcision and giving of the name. So when Zechariah shows up to give the name, they think that he will name the, the boy in accordance with their family tradition. And instead, they hand him something, and he begins to write the name down that Gabriel had given him. And he writes very slowly, John. And as soon as he writes that, his mouth is open and it is though the silence of 400 years is broken and he begins to prophesy and declare this will be like Elijah coming to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers. And he said they will see a great light in the valley of darkness that will shine. And John is commissioned to take the Nazarite vow to be consecrated wholly and fully to the purposes of God. And he will be so until the time of his appearing at 30 years old down the story. Now Elizabeth is hiding something in her heart because even before John was born, when Mary even walked into the room, John the Baptist responded to the presence of God in Jesus. Boom, and he leaps. Isn't that wild? Because John himself was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Now, here's the deal. When Mary is impregnated with the seed of the Most High God, fully God, fully man, Something more astounding than we can possibly imagine transpires. The omnipotent, all-knowing God has become one cell in the womb of a teenage girl. One cell. The God who created every living thing has just entered into cellular division. One to two, two to four, and God is multiplying cells inside of a woman. The God who is larger than the cosmos is unseen in the womb. Guys, please don't over-spiritualize that. What in the world is happening on planet Earth? And as this baby begins to grow, something crazy happens in Joseph's mind. He's like, I can't, I can't shame her. I've got to divorce her. I've got to call this thing off. Because the engagement to a Jewish man and woman was as though they were in covenant. And God thankfully comes. And don't you love that he so values marriage that he who joins us together cares about our unity and oneness more than we ever could. And he comes and stops the divorce. And he says, take this woman to be your wife. Don't you feel the passion of God in covenant marriage entering into history right there? And he averts that disaster 
but it will cause great, uh, a horrible reputation for their family. So I want to just show this. This is what God is doing. The new life begins as a single cell. By the 21st day of the embryo's tiny heart begins to beat. Can you imagine when God the Father heard his son of flesh? Little heart begin to beat. I remember when I went and listened to Lily's heart when she was in the womb. It is one of the most, it sounds like a horse running. It's really funny. I remember when Selah was in the womb and Lily would love to listen. Can you imagine what the father is feeling as he hears his son's heart beating around the 21st day? And the baby's three months old. It's already developed its own blood type. This blood type that would save the creation. <laughs> wonder what it was. Unique from the mother's. The face is well-formed and the eyes are almost fully developed. Oh my goodness, the eyes that have looked on history. The eyes of God. The eyes of God, the embryo. The eyelids will close and not reopen until the 28th week. Arms that will stretch out. Hands that will be pierced. Fingers, legs, feet, toes are fully formed. Nails and those little cute earlobes start to form. Look at this. The second trimester, the brain is fully developed and the fetus can suck and swallow and make irregular breathing sounds. Fingernails and toenails appear. Do you understand that God is fully dependent on Mary? Really? Connected through an umbilical cord to the mother? Wow. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. This third trimester, there's this rapid increase in the amount of body fat the fetus has, and the rhythmic breathing occurs. The fetus sleeps 90 to 95% of the day. And there's God resting, resting. And uh, a census is taken by Caesar. And it's this beautiful, sovereign moment in the story. Because they're ordered back to their place of origin. And them being from the line of David, they have to go back to the town of David. And something on that bumpy road... They say go walking. Something on that bumpy road, I don't know if she was riding a donkey or whatever, set off the labor. And just about the time, the census aligns with just where the pregnancy needs to be. She goes into labor and history is about to bring forth the fullness 
and fulfillment of the story. There is activity in the angelic realm all over the place happening. It's a crazy story. You know the Christmas story. I'm not going to tell it. It's absolutely fantastic where God himself is not even welcomed into an inn. Born in this dirty space. Who is God? But no credit is needed from the human realm because the angels start showing up. They show up to the shepherds and they begin to burst into a joy unimaginable. They say, we bring you the good news of great joy for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. Does that ring with covenantal promise language? Guys, the joy of the eternal God is breaking forth in the earth. God is born. The angels declare to the shepherds, peace on earth. Peace on earth. And glory to God in the highest. Wouldn't you have loved to hear their song? What is transpiring in this time? This moment when God is enfleshed could be the most astounding moment in human history. I want to just, it's the word called incarnation, when God was enfleshed. This quote, it's impossible to overstate the significance of the incarnation, for without it there would be no restoration of humanity's purpose, no sinless sacrifice, no relationship with the Father, or adoption of sons and daughters, no defeat of death, no tangible revelation of God's glory. It is impossible to overstate God having so much passion that he wants to become one of us. And I want to look at this incarnation for just a second. You go up. The human image of God restored. When God becomes a man, just try to wrap your mind around this. He does so forever. Right now, as I talk on this goofy little microphone, there is a man at the right hand of the majesty of God with two eyes and a nose, with hands and feet, with hairs on his resurrected legs. He's got hair, and he still bears the wounds of his redeeming love. Can you please think of yourself differently as a human being when God would like to exist in that form forever. What I'm saying to you is, in the Trinity Fellowship, one of the members is now a human being. Creation and Trinity and humanity are bound together in one physical body forever. What? I mean, you could go on and on and on and on with the incarnation, but if you can get that into your brain, your existence as a human being will change. It requires that you think about yourself 
totally different as a human made in the image and likeness of God because God is now in the image and likeness of man. What? God's desire to be near. The definitive mark of God's passion in human history is he became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh that we may be one with him. Do you feel love coming down? God hears, God sees, God feels the oppression and slavery of our sin soul, destroying relationship, and he says, I'm coming near. No, no, I mean like near, like one of you near. The word tabernacled amongst us, that is the word for dwelt. God's in skin, kingdom and tabernacle, the connection of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth, never supposed to be separated, are married together in him, his body. The humility of limitation and locality. I mean, you could go on and on and on about the God who invented language limiting himself to just one or two. The God who was everywhere needing to walk around with stinky feet, right? The God who loves all people, confining himself to one culture. To being raised in one little family from two parents with a few brothers and sisters. Like, limitation of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. He left glory and he entered Our story, the author has stepped in. And we could go on and on. His identification, he fully experienced human life. I love that one theologian said, just by living the human experience in every facet, he stamped it with divinity. Do you feel that? This is what's going on in the story. So Jesus is born. Hebrews 2, 11, 14 through 16. Both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same, there's that word again, right? Family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Since the children had flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, the accuser, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to fear of death. Orphans and slaves, he has shared your humanity He has entered your story. He's not ashamed to call you brother. You are a part of his family, and he is a part of your family, and he is about to fill full the image of God in you and deliver you from the slave and orphan way from the inside out. This is what's happening. He's not even eight days old yet. Jesus, eight days old, he goes and he's given the name Jesus. This, again, the significant moment in a, Jesus, in a Jewish boy's life. 
He's marked, circumcised. He himself submits himself to the covenant prescribed in Genesis 17. He takes the ring of covenant. Isn't that crazy? God himself participates in his own covenant. He's not beyond it. It was his covenant. Isn't that wild? Because he's about to fill it full with meaning. Every moment of Israel's story. He, can I say this, becomes the Israel of God. You are about to see him relive Israel's whole story and fill it with its meaning covenantally. Ah! Jesus, one month old, this is consecration as the firstborn in Jerusalem. After the time of purification, about a month in, they needed to go down from Galilee to Jerusalem to present him as was appropriate for the firstborn according to the law. And there were these two old gray hairs there, and they had been waiting for the moment of their life. And what I love is that they were listening every day because they did not know the greatest day of their life, when it would be. God had spoken to Simeon and to Anna that before they passed, their eyes would see the one who was coming. One day, Simeon's doing his normal deal. He's, out about, he's, he's cruising around, and the Holy Spirit says, Today's the day. He's like, what? You never know when the greatest day of your life is, do you? I'm glad he was listening. He rushes to, oh my gosh, he rushes to the temple and he takes this one month old child in his hands. And as the old saint of Israel, he has the humility to realize he, exactly who he's holding. He looks at this child. He begins to kiss the salvation of God. He's kissing this child. He's crying over this child. He begins to declare, I can now die a happy man. For in my arms, I hold the hope of Israel and I hold the light to the Gentiles. In my arms, I hold... Do you hear these crazy words? In my arms, one month old, I hold the hope of our entire lineage. I hold the seed that will bless all nations. Anna awakens with the same thing. He saved from death. A mass abortion breaks out. And uh, Herod, it's like a Moses moment in the story. And do you see the reliving of Israel's story? Through an angelic encounter, they save his life and take him into Egypt. Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. <laughs> I love that. Out of Egypt, I called my son. An angel shows up again and says, okay, it's safe. The man who's done this has passed away. Go back. And they go back to Galilee. 
to Nazareth, an out-of-the-way place, looked down upon by the Jewish people. Why despised would God put his son there? Isn't it wild? The next great moment in a Jewish boy's life would be at 12. Still to this day, the bar mitzvah. This is the moment when primary leadership moves from the mother imprinting. And I love that God set up their society like this. That the imprint of nurture would happen until 12. And at that point, the father would come and they would recognize this uh, boy as a young man. And it was time to apprentice with the father. In the natural, at this moment, Jesus would have submitted himself fully to the trade and the way of his earthly dad. Don't you love that? And this is the moment in the story when you see Jesus left behind. You think it's bad to leave something. Think about leaving God behind, you know? We actually do that a lot, don't we? But Mary's cruising down the road. They're like way down the road. They're like, we forgot God. (laughs) We, We forgot Jesus. What have we done? They cruise back a long ways. All the way back, and Jesus is 12, kicking it in the temple. And what does he say? Don't you know I would be in my father's house? This is when his apprenticeship with his heavenly father comes online. And it says they had not heard authority like that. He was unfolding the law to the teachers of the law and asking questions. Guess what begins to happen? God, Jesus, is growing in favor with God and man and growing in stature. In other words, Jesus did not pop out of the womb with omniscience. Another way to say that is you can never say about one moment in Jesus' life, he did that because he's God. You can't say it. Because he came to live the human story in the exact same way that Adam had to and that you have to. And there was no other way he could fill it full and redeem it all. Do you see that? So Jesus is growing in wisdom in the natural. He's also growing as he reads the same story that we're declaring. He's growing in favor and wisdom. I want to take a break before we get to the next moment in Jesus' development in life. And it is an absolutely beautiful moment. So, Father, we just ask that you would rest upon us and you would unveil your son. Amen. All right, let's welcome Adam back. These years from 12 to 30 are such beautiful years to me. I really love that nothing's said about them. Think about it. God's been waiting to burst into human frame in skin and bone for eternity And he decides to let 30 of his 33 years be totally unrecorded just so he can enjoy 
the goodness of being human. Guys, it's not just a religious spiritual story. Remember the good creation? God is affirming it by living it and not even making a, letting it be recorded as some big deal just for his own beautiful enjoyment. All the dynamics of what we enjoy as being human that we think are nothing, God thinks they're absolutely fantastic. Creation is his idea, right? And these years where he's working with his dad, growing up with his brothers and sisters, living life in Galilee, I think in eternity are still his fond memories as he sits with his father. I mean, we don't get to see what they were, but I'm just sure of it. I love that about God. Aren't you glad he wasn't a seven-year-old prophesying superstar? You know, really. He's living and filling up humanity's dignity. I love it, guys. God is not the God of just the sacred. There is no divide with secular. For God, life was filled with glory. It was sacred. It was consecrated. He created it and invented it. John the Baptist gets a word from the Lord. He's kind of an odd guy anyways. He gets the word and it's time for him to arise. And when he arises, he decides to go out into the desert and have people, if they really want it, come out there. And he becomes the show in the nation. I mean, it's been said that he attracted even larger crowds than Jesus did. And they were saying, who are you? Are you the one who's coming? Are you the prophet? And he would just say, you know what? I'm not even worthy to untie the one who's coming sandals. (laughs) Don't you love that? He was the friend of the bridegroom. And he comes with the message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus thought it was such a good message, he let that message roll off his lips as well. When he was saying that, he was saying this, the kingdom of God is bodily walking around on the earth. The reign and rule of God is demonstrated in one place in creation, the physical heart and body, mind and soul of Jesus of Nazareth. There's one place in creation fully submitted to the Father. Meaning Jesus, every moment of his life, believed rightly about God as good and rightly about him as the beloved one of his Father. And therefore, because he believed rightly of God and rightly of himself, he could treat others with the worth and dignity that God gave to him. And therefore, he was walking around fulfilling the covenant law, loving God with his being and loving his neighbor as himself. 
And the only thing that can happen when you live like that is what's about to happen in the story. (laughs) John is baptizing folks in the Jordan, the same river that washed up back and piled up to the city of Adam. Do you feel this? He's standing in the river as a sign and a wonder, baptizing. Now, some have said that baptism wasn't for the Jews. It was actually a way for someone who was a Gentile to join the covenant people. Do you understand the humility to ask the covenant people to come out into the desert and join the covenant people? John is lowering them in the water and raising them up. He's saying, God cares about your heart. The kingdom is near. Repent. You've got to let go of what's in your hand so you can grab hold of what's at hand, the kingdom. You've got to let go of your self-script and join the story, God's on the planet. And he knew that when his eyes fell on that one, he would know it when he saw it. And one day he's down there and he's got his usual line. And guess what? Here comes a man rolling up, standing in line with everybody else. I mean, he could have come in with angels surrounding him, flying from Galilee to the Jordan, saying, excuse me, I know everybody's cool getting baptized I'm God! I'm on the planet! (laughs) No, I'd rather stand in line. I hate lines. The Messiah stands in line. And then there's this moment where John lowers someone and prays, and he looks up and he's tired. And he looks, and their eyes catch, and John's just going, Oh no, this is the moment I was created for. And it dawns on him. This is his Simeon moment. He looks at Jesus, he steps aside, he says, No, you come in, you baptize me. I'm not baptizing you. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I would never steal the bride, bride's attention from the one who's waiting. I don't even want to be in the same frame as you. This is his cousin. It dawns on him that this is the moment. Jesus looks him in the eyes as gentle And as focused as he will ever be. And he says, no, John, today we will do this to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is faithfulness in a covenant relationship. Jesus had walked every day of his human life. Perfectly believing about his father perfectly believing about himself and perfectly relating to humanity out of that place. The universe declares, like the law of gravity, 
that where there is righteousness, heaven and earth cannot be separated. When Jesus steps into that Jordan River, Joshua, do you feel this? The new Joshua is standing in the Jordan about ready to walk into the land of promise and conquer every enemy. This moment in a Jew's life, age 30 with the man, is called the moment of adoption. In the Jewish culture, here's what happens. After a son is faithfully apprenticed with his father, Walking in the ways of his father. The son, the father would come to the son and he would lay his hand on the son's head. And here's what he would say. Son, I am well pleased with you. You've worked with me these 18 years. Today, All of my riches, all of my power, and all of my authority is yours. You carry the family name and the family authority. That is adoption. John looks at Jesus, and Jesus says with a wink, It's go time. He lowers him into the water. Can you believe Jesus took the baptism of repentance? He had never sinned and he said, God, I am yours. When Jesus comes out of the water, righteousness rips open the heavens. God cannot contain himself The Spirit of God comes bodily like a dove and the voice of the Father booms out of the heavens and for the first time since the garden, the Trinity is present on planet Earth. God then declares, you are my Son with the hand of the Spirit on His head and says, I love you. Out of all the things that God could have said, about the mission he would undertake, about the purpose of his life. No, 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 no. God was not wasting words. There was one thing that he wanted Jesus to know because it's the one thing he wanted humanity to know since the moment he breathed into them. I love you. I know you haven't started your ministry I'm wildly pleased with you. Do you feel that? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, whom is all my delight. And at that moment, he is filled with the power of the Spirit. He becomes the prototype of spirit-filled humanity. And when the Holy Spirit, who's been with him forever, comes and fills his new humanity, do you feel this? 
God has a happy home in God. A home in humanity where he will not be resisted for the very first time. (laughs) And immediately, happy God inside of happy God takes happy God into the middle of a barren desert for fasting. Why did you just do that in the story? Because this one is the new Adam and the true Israel. Adam in the midst of a garden of delight with every option available to him chose the one forbidden option. This Adam in a barren, desolate desert forsakes all options and all food and guess what he begins to eat? In the middle of his 40-day fast, he says, I'm not fasting, I'm feasting on the words that boomed over me at the Jordan. I am my father's beloved. The enemy shows up like he did in the garden, in the middle of the desert, and he begins to speak to him. He says, I bet you're hungry, huh? Do you remember that, the temptation from the garden? I bet you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? And here comes the true Israel. Are you ready? He takes on his lips three powerful quotes right out of Deuteronomy spoken from the man Moses who was burning, giving the second law to a new generation right after all of their forefathers had perished where? In the desert. He takes on to his lips and he says, I think I remember a place in the story. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He says, I've been eating for 40 days. Nice try. God's been speaking his belovedness over my spirit. Do you feel this crushing the head of the enemy? He will crush your head. (laughs) And the next temptation and the next temptation. And each time the enemy says, if you are the son of God. The last thing Jesus had heard was, you're my beloved son. You are going to see the enemy try to steal this until Jesus' dying breath on a cross where the accusers begin to accuse him and listen to the words that come out of their evil heart. They say, if your father takes pleasure in you, why doesn't he come and save you now? I tell you, if the enemy tried to steal from Jesus... From the moment of his baptism till his dying breath, his belovedness, how much is he trying to steal it from you and I? Oh my goodness, you guys. And Jesus latched onto this and he comes out of these temptations after quoting Deuteronomy and fulfilling what they left dead in the desert, he now is living in the desert. And he has fulfilled their story 
the second law he has been completely faithful to. Do you feel this? And it says he comes out of that desert, not just filled with the Spirit, but in the power of the Spirit. And now Joshua is coming to dispossess the enemies from his promised land. And the way he's going to do it is he, every moment of his life, enjoy fellowship with his daddy. I want to read these scriptures really quick. One more. No, keep going. John 5, 19 through 20. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Radical relationship with the father every moment of his life. This is why we can't say he lived out of his God, godness. He says, no. I'm here to live 100% dependent on the Father. I can do nothing. I'm not eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. My tree is the tree of life, and God is my life. I love this. John 14, 9 and 10. Don't you know me, Philip? You've been with me for three years. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? If you've ever wanted to know what the eternal God is like, look at every single moment of Jesus' earthly life. He is the Father in full color. He is perfect theology. He's walking around in his Father's unity. Fellowship with his Father was his great reward. And it's go time, man. Jesus takes on his lips the exact same words as John the Baptist, and he goes out proclaiming, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Go to the... Yeah, go one more. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And one of the first activities of his ministry as this Yeshua is to reproduce on the earth what he enjoyed in heaven forever. He wanted friends, a fellowship of knuckleheads to share his life with. And listen, look at this quote, Matthew 12, 48. Immediately, even before this in the story, he, he goes and it says he finds a few and he says, come follow me. Come be with me. Three years to save planet Earth, and he will spend 70% of his time with 12 boneheads, right? What kind of crazy methodology is that? It's family methodology. It's imprint methodology. It's eternal family methodology. He can't do anything but reproduce what he has been and experienced. He replies to them, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
He brings a radical new vision of relationship on the earth, saying whoever's in the Father is the family of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. God is a family. The kingdom of the family, God. So here is what Jesus is about to do. Are you ready? He is going to walk around fully in his Father, and any person thing or place that doesn't smell like the fragrance of the eternal family fellowship, any atmosphere that doesn't uh, feel like that atmosphere, any environment that doesn't ring with that environment, any song that doesn't sound like the song of the love of the Father, he is going to bring an atmosphere exchange to. That is the ministry of Jesus summed up. I'm bringing the kingdom to earth as I enjoyed it with Father and Spirit. Oh my goodness. And this means target number one is sin, the enemy of the soul that has destroyed the ones he's loved since the beginning. So he begins to release extravagant mercy and forgiveness to deal with the shame and guilt that is plaguing and weighing down the ones he loves called humanity. He then begins looking for anything in the physical body that is not in alignment with the atmosphere of love. Any sickness, any oppression, any darkness, he begins to displace every other environment and every other atmosphere with the love of God. Love so strong that it heals the sick. Will we be the generation that does not choose either love, oh, the safety, or power? We want the power. But will we see that love and power are the same atmosphere within Father, Son, and Spirit? We're asking for the way they do it there for us to be able to do it here. Relationally bringing the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. Wherever he saw unreconciled relationship, he brought restoration. Wherever he saw sickness, he brought it under the reign of God. I love what the Psalms say. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. You want to know why it says that? Because if the God who is all loving, all joyful, all peaceful is in control, everybody's partying. In fact, Jesus was partying so hard, they said he's a drunk, demonized dude. You know why? Because he was walking around in a rest environment of being loved and not needing to earn his, per, his worth even in the slightest. And so everywhere he went was a liberating from slavery and fear and orphan patterns. He was a walking vision of the party in heaven to the extent that religious people could not handle him. And the people he wanted in his party were the people that everyone said, you're not good enough for God. (laughs) And he said, excuse me, I think I am God. I would like to eat with you. You're good enough for me. Do you feel the atmosphere? This is what it means. Repent. Let go of anything that is not your highest good. 
Of course you want to let go of all this junk so your hands are open, so your soul is open to become the promised land of God. And when God reigns, he starts on the inside and he moves through you and he begins to bring creation under rule again. Do you feel that? Creation itself is groaning, waiting for what? The revealing of the sons of God. That's why when Jesus was walking around, he would say things like, even the rocks will cry out if you don't worship me. Creation recognizes whose presence is touching it. I'm the son liberating it from frustration. It's a crazy story. And he's bringing his fellowship with him. On the run, on the walk, he's moving them and growing them up. To follow the rabbi meant to walk in his dust. It was a common practice. It wasn't just that you would know what he knew or do what he did, but you would become what he was. And any rabbi with his salt as Trent said when he was here, wanted his disciples to go further than he went. And this, and Jesus is no lesser of a rabbi. Jesus actually has in his eyes these guys doing greater works than he, going beyond where he went. And he is going to lay down everything to see it happen. Can you imagine So what did it look like in the lives of people when Jesus was bringing the atmosphere of the kingdom? Don't you want to bring the atmosphere of the kingdom in our generation? As it is in heaven on this earth, he's saying, yeah, I taught you to pray that that way. I know what the will of God is. It is as it is in heaven. I know what the will of God feels like. It is as it is in heaven. I'm bringing to earth as it is in heaven with my daddy. Everywhere. I want to just, just to fill our imaginations. One of my favorite things to do in prayer, if you're with your friend or you're doing some kind of a prayer meeting, one of my favorite things to do is just say, let's all imagine a story about Jesus and speak it out colorfully. It's one of the best ways to worship. And I want to do this just with a few. There's some stories that I have there. I love these stories. Water to wine at a party? Are you kidding me? God on the planet inaugurates his miracle ministry with making a party better. (laughs) He's like, this is lame. I've been in heaven. I'm about to throw down kingdom wine. And And he does the best at the end. I'm serious. Can we please consider that the inaugural miracle of the Messiah was a better party? It's not an accident. It's wild. It says something about the atmosphere of the kingdom. It is joy and it's at a wedding. Come on. Right? Jesus is like, I'm looking for a wedding, and it is joy. 
it is joy. And he just blows their minds at the end. And, and they say, well, most people save the best wine for last. And what have you done? You're incredible, you know? And his, his mom's like, okay, I guess he started. It's a funny one. Here's God on the planet touching the ones that no one else will touch. Isn't that wild? God is touching. That is the atmosphere of the kingdom. Touching the ones that no one else will touch. If God's here, he touches the ones that no one else will touch. And he brings to their decaying body his wholeness. I really have been wrestling with the Lord over the place of healing, longing for it as an as a, as a expression of the kingdom. And for a while I thought, you know what, God? Like, it seems like you heal bodies to get to what you really want, the heart. And I felt like the Lord said, you don't understand the kingdom. It's all the same to me. I don't heal the body to get to the heart. Sometimes you're more aware of the body, so I'll heal the bodies to make you aware that I love your heart. Because that's what humanity is aware of, their physical predicament. So often I'll inaugurate my kingdom in someone's life by healing what they're focused on to get to what they're not focused on. Jesus was speaking words and they were creating new atmospheres around people possibilities they had never thought of. He said, the words I speak are spirit and life, meaning they carried physical substance in people's worlds. The words themselves they could take hold of and it would change them, in other words. This is why artists are so important, and I could just go off on this. Actually bringing presence to physicality. This is what Jesus was doing. Touching the ones no one else would touch. Sitting at the well with a Samaritan woman, considered a half-breed, at a weird time of day. And he engages her and he reveals that he's the son of God to her before even his disciples. What? This woman who's there because she's so ashamed of her life. And she becomes the running ambassador that brings a town to him. And he says, I've got food you know nothing about. It's the will of my father. It was like Jesus' joy was walking around, bringing heaven to earth, eating it and rejoicing. Do you feel that? Whatever the will of God was, was his food and his joy. I love that he heals the centurion's servant with a word. He's shocked by that man's faith. Do you know your faith can move God? Wow, you know, you can go on and on. He heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Sometimes you think your little cold doesn't matter to God. And he's like, actually, yes, it's not in the atmosphere. You know, it's not in the environment of, the, of heaven. <laughs> and he just touches her because he wants her to, in, to, to come in, you know. He calms the storm. Yes, he has authority over creation as Adam. That's why he's doing these signs and wonders over creation, is he's just walking in his sonship, as Adam was called to do. 
forgives and heals a paralytic. He heals a man born blind. Man, that story is awesome, John 9. Healed a woman with 12 years of bleeding and raised a ruler's daughter from the dead. Grieved over his cousin John's death. You remember that story? He's grieving over his cousin John being beheaded. And instead of going, it says he wanted to withdraw to a solitary place. But the masses begin to press on. And he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he set his disciples on to a vacation and a retreat. And he stayed and he fed the crowds. And he ministered out of his own grieving heart over his cousin. Who is God on planet earth? I love it. Right? He grieves over Lazarus. Jesus wept. What a beautiful moment in the story to see the emotions of God. He multiplies the boy's lunch. He takes this impossible scenario and he just always had possibility in his mind. He defends a woman caught in adultery. Story of stories. Right? Riding in the dirt. Who will throw the first stone? Go ahead. And he looks in her eyes and he gives her back her dignity. Unmerited favor. He was the grace of God in flesh. He was compassion. And on and on. Eight meals with friends. He walked on water. He pulled away to be with his father again and again and again. Are you guys picking up the spirit of the kingdom coming? The ministry of the kingdom, the beauty of Jesus. He sends out his boys. He says, Go ahead, I delegate my authority. Take the keys to my car. They come back freaking out. There's like, The demons submit to us. We have never seen anything like this. Jesus looks at them and he's like, Isn't it awesome? I saw Satan fall like lightning. <laughs> but then he goes, not worth rejoicing in compared to your name written in the family book of life. Sons and daughters trump miracles every time. And it says, full of the Holy Spirit, he rejoices spinning around. And he says, these things are hidden from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the wise and learned, and they're revealed to who? Little children, humble he takes the child and he puts him in the middle and the disciples are like, let him go around. We're, we're arguing over who's going to sit in your galactic kingdom on your right and your left and we're going to send down fire and kill people. He's like, or you could think about this child. This child who trusts in their parents will inherit the family kingdom. On and on. The Beatitudes. He takes the whole story and he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the entire story. And then he goes right into the core, beyond the law, into the human heart. And he said, I'm going to establish my reign from the inside out. Servant. Leader. This is the kingdom coming. All of these stories and teachings. The prodigal son about a slave and an orphan in the same house. And the father who can't contain himself. So he runs off the porch into history and embraces his son. And then he welcomes the slave to fear. And says, what I had was yours the whole time. Don't you understand the nature of the kingdom? Sons and daughters. 
come home to the Father. This is the kingdom coming as it is in heaven because the king is a dad. And the Messiah is a son. The Lord is a son in whom the Father's pleased. And it really doesn't get any better than this moment right in the last week. I want to look at the Passion Week. Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Oh my gosh, they're laying down their, the, the palm branches and they're hailing him coming in on a donkey. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's sitting there not soaking one ounce of it into his heart. He's living in the worth of his father. It's a crazy moment. Monday, he cleanses the temple. This is Jesus the cowboy just turning stuff over. My friend has a whole comedy routine on Jesus the cowboy, which is very, very funny. Um, I wish I could go into it, but I'm short on time. Um, Tuesday, controversy in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives, he's anointed. Oh, man, the fragrance fills the room. And he says, wherever the gospel goes, this story will be told. They wanted to use it for the poor. And he said, the poor you'll always have. I'm being anointed for the moment in history. Wow. Wednesday is silent. And Thursday, oh my goodness, Thursday. If you want to walk into the Holy of Holies of the gospel, of all four gospel, John 13 through 17. In my imagination, it is the closest feeling that one could have to what it was like for the Father, Son, and Spirit to sit around a table. He welcomes his dearest friends after three years to a table in his greatest place of weakness. He starts the dinner off by taking off his outer garment and making himself a servant and washing his friends' feet one by one because it said he knew who he was and where he was going. And he showed them the full extent of love. Are you kidding me? As if they hadn't seen love up to that point. And he serves them and he says, do like I do. And then as the dinner progresses, he begins to talk to them about a crazy idea. He says, guess what, guys? You thought it was amazing to have God in the flesh. There's something better. They're like, shut up. (laughs) And he goes, you know what's better than God in the flesh? God in all flesh. I'm going to send the counselor and comforter, and he will be with you forever. They were like, we don't know. They're like, no, you know him. He lives with you, and he will be in you. The gift the Father has promised. He will teach you everything and remind you of things you've already forgotten that I've told you and taught you. He will be the Father's belovedness singing the song from the inside out. Unprecedented intimacy. They're like, nothing could be better than hanging out with Jesus in flesh. He said, I will live in you. They're like, that's a little weird. I can imagine if Dave said, I've got to go, but I will live in you. They're like, okay. 
It's weird, isn't it? Think about it from their human perspective. It's like, all right, you're cool, but all right, you're going to live in me. Their brains are still fried. And he says, I'm the vine that's been growing through history. Will you be grafted into me? I am the Israel. This is story language. And if you are in me and connected to my covenant faithfulness, you will be what? Fruitful, Genesis. And you will fill the earth with my glory and my father will have great joy. I'm the fulfillment of the word and blessing to Adam and to Abraham and to David. John 15, I mean, and I don't call you servants, I call you friends, because I share my heart with you. Ask me anything, he says, and I'll do it. I mean, you've got me. And he moves into 16 with more intimacy on the Holy Spirit. And then, holy of holies of holies, John 17, he begins to unveil his heart through the whole thing. He starts with Before creation, the glory he shared, the way God loved him. And then he looks at them and he begins to pray. Oh, don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world, but protect them from that lying accuser and let their lives be filled with the oneness that is in the Trinitarian relationship. And when the world sees their family love, they will know that I'm sent from the Father. He says, give them the glory of Trinity family and let it drop on them until it's so abundant that the whole world believes Jesus came. Are you kidding me? And on and on. I mean, I just did that terrible injustice. Read John 17. And then they sing a hymn And this is the moment that fries their Jewish story brains. He looks them in the eyes and he says, remember why we've gathered. This is the Passover meal. And he looks at them and I actually want to read this because I want to, I want to get this right. Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the hour came. In John 12, someone attempted him and said, save me from this hour. And he looked and he said, no, I won't pray. Save me from this hour. It's for this very hour that I came. Father, glorify your name. Do you feel that prayer? When the hour had came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, oh, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks. And he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He takes 1,500 years 
of meticulous story rehearsal of the Passover. And he looks these Jewish men in the eyes and he says, I am the Passover lamb. It is my body that is going to be broken. It is my blood that will bring forth Jeremiah 31, word of God. And I will forgive their sins. And soaring into the imagination is those 16 centuries of meticulous, laborious sacrifice at the temple and the celebration year after year after year, the rehearsal to their children, and some would say every night before bed, tell us that story again of liberation from from slavery, the Passover. And he looks at them and says, I am it. And then he takes them into a garden. And in the first garden, Adam sinned and fell. And in this garden, he will get down. You say he doesn't feel. His capillaries in his skin are exploding because of the pressure that is on him. He begins to sweat blood to the point that he can barely stand up. And three times he says, take this cup from me. And then crushing the Adamic sin of selfishness, he says, instead of my will, not yours be done, he reverses it and he says, your will, not mine, be done. And at the end of it, his friends are asleep. They have to pick him up and angels come and minister to him and pick him up. And as soon as he stands and addresses his friends, there come the torches through the darkness into Gethsemane, the wine press. And when they come, they're coming after him and they pull up to him this whole entourage and he looks them in the eye and he says, Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And when he says, I am, they fall down in the power of God. Because the I am of the burning bush has just spoken to them. They fall down and when they get up, they seize him. And Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. Slices off the guard's ear, at which Jesus looks at him in perfect peace, calms him, picks up the ear off of the ground in the presence of those taking him captive, and puts it back on his head. What would you do if you were standing there? My kingdom is not of this world, or else my men would have fought. It is built from a different place. My kingdom is from a different place. They come and they bring him into three phases that are Jewish phases. And I want you to see these. The first is before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And uh, at this phase, this is late on Thursday night. And this thing will go all the way through the night until early in the morning. In which they're about to... They have celebrated the Passover early. They're going to actually celebrate in the weekend. 
And, um, and so they come in and they begin to accuse him. And at one point, he addresses them. And he says, if, I have, if I've said something untrue, then why is it that you've hit me? And they're just dumbfounded by his wisdom. They continue to mock him and accuse him. And they ask him, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And he, said, and he would always wait for them to make the confession. And then he would say, I agree with you. It's out of your own mouth. Through that night, they sent him then to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. And then in the morning, early Friday morning, around the dawn, they meet with the Sanhedrin again. And at that point, they know they need no more evidence because he has confessed to saying, I am the son of God. Under their law, that is punishable by death. They say we need no more evidence Though they were bringing all this accusation that was contradicting, at that confession, it is over. They bring him straight to the Romans. The reason is, they are not allowed to execute anyone. So they bring, at that point, they bring him to Pilate. And he will undergo three phases with Pilate. And um, I want you to read this conversation in John 19 sometime. It's absolutely fascinating. I'll just read a little bit to you because we're, we're running out of time. Verse 33 of 18, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to, me about, talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? He replies. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now the kingdom is from another place. So you're a king then. You're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. For this reason I came to the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate says. Isn't it wild? And then he figures that he could appease this seething army that just days before it said, Hail him king. And now are yelling, we get to release one person at the Passover. And Pilate knows that. And Pilate says, okay, I can release one person. Can I please release this, uh, this Jesus, the king of the Jews? I say he is your king. I find no reason to charge him. And they say, no, release the murderer. And one of the gospels says they got what they asked for. Do you feel the covenant people of Israel's passion God says, do you love me? They say, no. Do you love me? No, we do not. Do you love me? No, we choose the murderer over you. Pilate says, I find no basis of charge. Maybe if I flog him to death, they will have compassion. So look what they do to him. They send him to the praetorian. Uh, no, you went way far. Back there. Dressed in a purple robe, a crown of thorns, blindfolded, they spit on him. They begin to slap his face. They begin to strike him over the head. They kneel, they mock him, and they begin to say, King of the Jews, prophesy who's hitting you. Why doesn't God come and save you? And then they take the cat of nine tails 
and they tie him to the block, and they begin to just rip him to shreds 39 times because that was the point they thought they could bring you right up to death, but not over. They rip out his internal organs. Everything would have been unrecognizable at this point. Then they put a robe around him. Pilate, this is the part that I threw up in, in the Passion of the Christ. They bring him back out. He has a crown pressed into his head. They're mocking him. The Jews see him, and instead of compassion, they begin to roar, crucify, crucify. One of the worst torture devices ever designed by human beings. Can you imagine the day when a human mind that God gave invented the means of crucifying someone? What was God thinking? That will be what I choose. They will know. Wow. He is then at that point taken away. And here's what they do. They make him carry the cross. It says multitudes were following him. The women are weeping. He looks at them. He says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. If they do this while the tree is green, how much more when I am gone? Oh my gosh. He falls under the weight. His body ripped apart. They have to choose a man. He carries the cross all the way up to the place of the skull. Two other murderers with him on his right and his left. They put him down on the ground. They crucify him, meaning they hammer in between his wrists. And as they're hammering, he's screaming out in pain through his ankles. And he's down on the ground. And he looks to the side and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing right now. At that point, they hoist him up and drop him into the hole. And excruciating pain fills his entire body as the nerves come down on the nails. And both of the others are crucified at his right and his left. And these are the first three hours. These will be six hours in all of history. And in those six hours, God will deal with History's sin. Can you believe it? In just six hours at Calvary. He begins stripped, naked, embarrassed, hoisted, dropped. He refuses the wine and the two robbers begin to speak to him. One begins to taunt him and mock him. And the other from a cross stands up for him and says, We deserve what we've got. This man does not deserve it. Jesus looks at him and he says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me. (laughs) From the cross, he ministers the father's heart to this man. Can you believe it? I tell you, you'll be with me. The taunts and the insults begin to increase. How come if you could... Lower the temple and rebuild it in three days? You can't bring yourself off the cross? Oh, is he calling for Elijah? What is he asking for? And the worst of the worst, if your father loves you, why doesn't he come get you down off this tree? Oh, he would like to watch you die. Do you feel this? And then from the cross, the son ministers kingdom family. He looks at his mother weeping, and he looks at the beloved John. Peter has, is living in shame from three confessions. He looks at them and he ministers to her. 
And he says, Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Isn't that beautiful? Excruciating pain. The cross was about suffocating someone. It hurts so bad to pull yourself up that you tired and you were unable to do it and therefore you couldn't get a breath and you died of suffocation. Usually they would have to come and break their legs because they had been there so long. But most people were not flogged moments before they were crucified. At this point, three hours in, it says that something was transpiring in the heart of God so intense that darkness consumed the entire land. And at this point, these last three hours, you begin to hear the inner meditation of God in the flesh. The word is stored up in his heart. Knowing all that was completed and scripture being fulfilled, Matthew says, he said, I thirst. You know what I love about that? The custom was that a woman and a man would sit down at a table to be married. And the woman would fill, sorry, excuse me, the man would fill up his cup and he would slide it across and he would say, if you will drink down this entire glass, you would take me in and you would marry me. And then the woman would look across and she would pour in all of herself into this cup and slide the glass across and he would drink it down. And it was like Jesus, who had said, take this cup from me in Gethsemane, said, I will drink the cup of the bride who has wounded my heart for all of history, and I will drink all of her into me, and I will marry her. And he receives the wine at this point. Wow. And then... He looks at his father and he quotes a psalm identifying with humanity where God had said, where are you? And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This distance we felt all this time. And then the beautiful moment of trust that breaks the back and crushes the head of the enemy from the garden. Father, even in this moment, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Full trust in you. And for the joy set before him, he imagined you and I sitting here. He imagined his family of all nations. And with one loud cry, he cries out from the cross, It is finished. The redemption and restoration of humanity's story. And when that happens, the earth begins to shake violently. Creation responds to the author finishing the story. 
The last days begin and the curtain in the temple is torn from the very top to the very bottom because the separation, the body of Christ was broken open and the presence of God was accessed fully. And then dead people begin to rise out of their graves and walk around Jerusalem as he has died. And they look at him and they say, no one has ever died like this. And a man reaches up and pierces his side. Blood and water flow, showing that his heart literally burst from love. They take him down off the cross without having to break his bones. And they take him to be laid in a grave for three long days. Jesus, we love you. We love you. Now we know what love is. Amen.